0: Hey friends, Ashton here, welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. We are joined today, uh, I think he's in New York City, I know he's from there, I don't know if he's there today, Uh, Jonathan Merritt, been following um, just his work in the world for a long time, Um, and he's got this book that just came out, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, literally, I think it's been out for two days now. Very lovely read, very interesting, very timely. Um, I'm super curious uh, about his story and his work, and especially this latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And so that being said, Jonathan has joined us, and um, thanks so much for making it happen today.
1: Oh yeah, the pleasure is all mine. And to answer your question, yes, I am uh, joining you from New York City, from from Brooklyn, actually,
0: right, right in my house. Right on Brooklyn. Well, um, I know you've probably been slammed this week. Numerous interviews. It's a book release. Is this is this your first book that's out?
1: This is not. It's my believe it or not. It's my fourth book. Fourth book. But uh, it's been years since I wrote a book. So there was like this little uh, period at the beginning of my career when I wrote books, and then I kind of stopped for the last uh, four or five years. And so. Uh, this is my—in some ways, I feel like it really is my first book, because yeah. it's so different from anything I've ever done before.
0: Yeah, right on. So I guess to kind of set the table a little bit for some of our listeners that have never crossed paths with you or are familiar with you and your work in the world, when you kind of introduce yourself, where, where do you begin?
1: I— uh... Well, I'm, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, I'm an Enneagram 3, okay. so I always start by saying the achiever, you know, yeah. very work-centric. So I will always start by saying I am a faith and culture writer, and so I kind of exist at the intersection of faith and uh, politics, uh, business, trends and social science, uh, the church and theology, arts and entertainment, uh, science. So... Uh, wherever religion is kind of brushing up against 21st century, particularly American culture, because I'm American and I write in this context, then I try to live kind of in that space.
0: Beautiful. Well, it sounds like you should, if we ever had a column at Good, True, and Beautiful Podcast, you would be our columnist.
1: I, <laughs> that is that is one of the things I do the most, is write columns. I write for, uh, for The Atlantic, I'm a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and uh, write for... For publications all over, and 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 that's some of the stuff that I love the most is writing in those con, in like concise form. Uh, this obviously is a bit longer of a project, and yeah. it takes uh, takes a minute to get all of that worked out and to get it published.
0: Yeah, yeah. So learning to speak God from scratch. Where uh, I, I know you begin the book with kind of the backstory, but. Um, let us into that a little bit. Why, you know, what, why this book, why now? And and how did it come to you?
1: Well, I started, uh, you, you know, as I mentioned before, I'd written some books and i had written three books actually by the time I was 30, before I was 30. And, um, <clears throat> I just don't think that a 30 year old in general, uh, has 150,000 words of wisdom to share <laughs> with the world. So I had already bequeathed to this universe uh, more than I had to to give, and just had made up my mind that, you know, the Christian industrial complex uh, likes to force people to write a book every two years, because mm-hmm. uh, that's yeah. kind of the money-making strategy, but uh, I just said, I'm not doing it, not until I have a message that is so important that I have to share it, mm-hmm. and uh, about Shortly after that, about a year after I made that decision, I moved to New York City, and as I say in the book, I ran into this really unexpected language barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that I couldn't speak English; I could still speak English as well as I always had, but I could no longer speak God. That that uh, spiritual conversations were now difficult all of a sudden. I had moved from the Bible Belt, where I was on a church staff, where all of my friends kind of uh, went to the same church that I did. They all kind of shared the same vocabulary. And here I was living a life really like a lot of people who, who aren't in vocational ministry live, where you're, in, you're encountering and engaging with people from all walks of life. And I found like, wow, it's a lot easier to write about a post-Christian culture than it is to live in one. Mm. Uh, As I dug deeper, I discovered that there were a ton, tens of millions of Americans who feel the pinch that I've felt, who struggle to speak God, who struggle to have spiritual conversations. Either the people they talk to don't understand what those words mean or the words have become so negative that they get stuck in their throats. and. As a result, most Americans don't speak God with regularity. And when I saw how bad this problem was, I was, I, I was shocked and said, okay, I think it's time to pick up my pen again. I think it's time to write a book.
0: Beautiful. And, and I know you're a wordsmith, um, You know the writer in you. You can definitely hear it through your writings. But so much of this book kind of begins with this idea of bringing these sacred words back to life saving them transforming them repackaging them coming and looking at them in in different ways what's the importance of like saving these sacred words like i'd, I'd love to hear you kind of walk and, and hold my hand on this because i really think as you begin this book you kind of go you know you call time out in a way and say hey we we've got to. words matter we're we this is this is how we communicate and and I think you call it, you know, saving some of these sacred words.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once I saw how bad the problem was, uh, I, I dug into the Google Engram data and found that most religious, spiritual, moral, virtue words are in massive decline in the English-speaking world and have been for at least the last 50 years. And when I conducted a survey of over a 1,000 American adults and found out that most Americans, in fact, only 7% of Americans say that they have a spiritual or religious conversation with regularity about once a week, which is not that much. Only one in eight practicing Christians speak about faith uh, on a regular basis. So... Uh, This was bad. But you have to ask the question, does it matter? You know, I mean, if it doesn't matter, then why did I spend four and a half years on this project? Why does somebody uh, spend $15 on buying the book? What does it matter? I mean, let's all just sort of pack up and go home if it doesn't matter, if it's just a change that is happening, but doesn't impact anything. What I found was I spent a year of this project just studying linguistics. And I discovered in that time period that there's this emerging body of research now that shows a tight connection between the words that we use or don't use and the thoughts we think. And a connection between the thoughts we think and our behavior patterns as individuals and as a society. So one example that I share in the book is. The concept of time. So, in the English-speaking world, we English is a future language. So, I, I I would say, for example, like yesterday, I would say, uh, I am going to go on Ashton's podcast. So, there's a there's always a tense, oh, yeah. uh, and we have a futured tense. Uh, other other languages, Asian, uh, several Asian languages, for example, would just say, I go Ashton's podcast, and you would figure out from the context. Mm-hmm. That it's in the future, but it is not futured. Well, why does that matter? It does matter because, because we talk about the future, we think about the future more often, and our behavior patterns take the future into consideration. So, if you compare a futured-speaking culture like English, like America, and you compare it to uh, China, for example, that doesn't have a future tense, you'll find by and large we uh, smoke less, uh, we practice more safe sex. Uh, we save more for retirement. We prepare more for our deaths. Uh, even our, our notions of a futured self uh, are developed in ways that are unique to us. So in America, we might, somebody might say, become your best self. Uh, that's a concept that, that works really well in America, but it doesn't work as well other places. Hmm. Now, when you think then about spiritual language, about sacred speech, if we do not talk about God, if we do not talk about faith, if we do not talk about the inner life or supernatural realities, then our, our minds are not going to be attuned to transcendence. And our lives will not reflect those realities. Our culture will be less, shape, less shaped by those realities. And so I, I suddenly realized, oh my, it is important that we recover these words because these words have the power to shape us, our minds, uh, our behaviors and our entire culture in ways that linguists and social scientists have never understood or realized until recently.
0: Hmm. Did any and this is a little off the beaten path. Did any of that research or just your your findings on that journey about us being a future focused people was there anything there about how that also robs us from being present to our very moments. Like, I wondered if there's anything there that you discovered as like, we are always, we're either in yesterday, right? Uh, or we're caught up in a future that's not known yet, and yet we're missing the very moment that's the breath itself at hand.
1: I don't, kn- I don't know if if uh, I found that in the research. There's obviously other trends that have contributed to that. Uh, but I don't know if language, because we do still have a present tense. Yeah. So are we present in the present? Uh, we certainly do talk about the present, and it would stand a reason then that we think about the present, and that our behaviors then would be at least somewhat overlapping with a present-speaking uh, culture. Uh, so... It, it, it's hard It's hard for me to know because I haven't read anything that, that shows that correlation. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so talk to me about comeback languages.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I was in this course of doing uh, research on linguistics. I began to run across this weird term, uh, comeback languages, the, the term you just used. You know, when I think about a comeback, I think about what... Uh, what Baylor tries to do in most of their football <laughs> games, if that makes any Easy. sense to you in Waco. Easy. Uh, so uh, I think I, I I think about sports. I think about uh, professional careers. I've never really thought about languages, but uh, every year, many many languages die out. They just vanish, disappear, and they continue to do that. They will continue to do that. But there is a phenomenon uh, among certain languages that have gone to the brink of death, or have started to die, and they have been resuscitated, revived, resurrected. The most important example of this, or the most prominent, is uh, Hebrew, for sure. With the rise of the modern Israeli nation-state, the language, uh, uh, Hebrew language, came back. It was sort of a dead language, and now it's spoken again. If you're in my neighborhood, I'm looking out my window right now in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, down at the south part of my neighborhood. Uh, that is the Hasidic Jewish quarter. You you will hear Yiddish if you walk in that Mm -hmm. quarter. You'll hear Yiddish spoken, which is an Eastern European language that almost died off as a result of the Holocaust and now has made a comeback uh, starting in the late 20th century. And so I began to realize that if living languages could die, it stood to reason that it was possible that dying languages could be revived. Mm -hmm. And then I started to discover languages that were revived and I wanted to know how that happened. How do you bring a a dying language back because uh, the language of faith, the vocabulary of faith is uh, an endangered species. If if current trends persist, uh, sacred speech will be basically extinct uh, in my lifetime. And so I really wanted to know what it would take to bring a language back like Hebrew, like Yiddish, like Hawaiian, like Irish and Gaelic and Catalan and some of these comeback languages. And that was a phenomenon that sort of rooted me uh, in, not just in linguistics, but also in what it meant to be a Jesus follower in the 21st century and sort of shine the way forward. Yeah,
0: yeah. Wow. What a discovery. Um, So as you entered this journey, and I think you've written about like ways that we can respond to such a dying language. Hold my hand on some of those responses, and, you know, what what are these steps that we need to do to revive some of this sacred language? Because um, I, I do think it's so necessary, um, and, and I think all too often we've used some of these uh, words and language um, more as weapons than, than oxygen for people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of our responses for, for such a dying language?
1: Yeah. Well, there, there, there are a range of responses, three primary responses that uh, I kept running across uh, whenever a language is dying. One is what I call fossilization. And this is a, an approach, by the way, all of these approaches uh, tend to be animated by good intentions. So hmm. that should be said.
0: Interesting. Uh, yeah.
1: but you, you will find this in really conservative Christian communities, fossilization. It, it's the approach that says, don't touch my words. Uh, and specifically don't question the meanings that I have attached to these words. Hmm. Um, so if you go into, for example, like, a like a new Calvinist church, and not to pick on new Calvinists, and and you you go into a Sunday school class or you meet with the pastor and you say, hey, I don't think that you figured out, I don't think you fully understand what salvation means. Or, hey, what do we think sovereignty means? Maybe we haven't gotten it right. That's not going to work so well (laughs) for you, uh, by and large. We don't have a
0: place for you here.
1: Right. There's, there's, a, there's a culture in many conservative churches that says, we are, not do, we are not doing theological investigation. We are doing apologetics. We've sort of figured out what these words and concepts mean. Our job is to train our people to convince everyone else that they should believe what we believe. They should define these words the way we define these words. Mm. That is the fastest way. Fossilization is the fastest way to kill a language because every language either changes or it dies. There are no exceptions to this. Every linguist agrees on this. C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book that addressed this concept of language called Studies in Words. Uh, It is- And he uh,
0: talks of like trees,
1: right? Yeah, he talks about these trees sprouting new branches over time. So it's uncontroversial. Every language is either moving toward extinction or evolution and there are no exceptions. The other approach, which is really common, I would say, among progressive Christians, is what I call substitution. And that's the one that says, all right, if I don't like a word, if I don't like what a word has come to mean, if a word has come to feel toxic, let's just all stop using it. So I talk about uh, some people in the book who I I heard say, you know, I'm not going to talk about God as much as some of you would like me to. Um, This is a slightly better approach, but not much, because you start sort of purging these words from your vocabulary and you realize you don't have anything left. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Christians, it doesn't work so well with the Christian faith in particular because we have a sacred text. And as a result of that, if you go, I don't like the word uh, God, well, then you go back to the text. We, we consider ourselves like Jews and Muslims, by the way, uh, people of the book. So when you go back to the book, you brush up against these words again and again, and you realize you didn't do anything to get rid of the word. You just purged it from your vocabulary. The other thing is, is that words are just carrier pigeons. They're empty boxes that you put an idea inside. And the problems that we have with words really are not the arrangement of letters. The problem is the idea that went in the box. That idea now makes us uncomfortable or we're confused about it or we don't understand it. And so when you engage in substitution, you are actually addressing a problem that doesn't exist and you're ignoring a problem that does exist. You're not addressing the idea that's problematic. You're, you're just merely addressing the word itself, which has no meaning except the meaning that we give it. What I argue for in the book is the way that you revive a language, which is a process called transformation, I call transformation. So instead of uh, uh, protecting words, which is what fossilization does, instead of pitching words, uh, which substitution does, you play with words. You, you begin to go back with curiosity, with imagination, uh, with a critical eye, and to ask in community, What should these words mean for us in our day? What are ways that we could breathe new life into these ancient terms? And that process is the engine that revives a language over and over again and drives it forward.
0: Yeah, and this takes work, right? Like along with curiosity, um, like I think we just haven't been doing our homework, right? You know, to come to the root idea that so much of this, uh, these beautiful sacred text, really the, be- the beauty, the mystery, by the way, um, the color, everything that they offer, um, I, I that was a brilliant point for me in your book was that words, once they start being the box carrying these ideas, that's that's when they can become weapons more than things that lead to liberation and transformation.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the top reasons that people give uh, for not having spiritual conversations. People say these, these, these words create tension and arguments. They say, I've been hurt by these words, that a religious leader or a, a friend or a parent, a family member, uh, crafted this word into a bludgeon and used it to hurt me, and it made it feel toxic, or they hear uh, a politician use this word or misuse uh, a religious words, and those Those are some of the most common reasons why people say, look, when I see the way these words are used and the effects they have, I think, yeah, I don't need that headache in my life.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So what are some of the most abused, (laughs) um, misunderstood, that's probably the better way to say it, um, misunderstood words that uh, you believe um, could use some transformation today?
1: Well, you know, for those listening, the first part of this conversation up to this point, we've really been talking about the first chunk of the book. The second chunk of the book is 19 essays on different words. And those are both, I would say, my least and most favorite words. They're not—I don't know that they're the most important words. There are a lot of important words that didn't get included. Uh, But they're words like God and sin, uh, pain and prayer— Disappointment, family, and loss, and these words, I I really try to do a good job of modeling for people what it would look like to reimagine these words Mm. in twenty in the twenty first century. Some of those some of those things will be uh, maybe controversial, or or some people might squirm a little bit. What I don't intend is for people to read the book and. Uh, and 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 feel like they have to understand the word I, the way I understand it. What I hope instead to do is to raise important questions uh, about these words, and people say I need to reimagine that word as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've just uh, in the last few weeks started to really study some of the work of Cynthia Bourgeau um, with some of her like centering prayer practices, and she's totally flipped me upside down recently about this idea of prayer that what if prayer is more listening than saying? And what if prayer isn't so much a place that you go to, rather it's a place that you come from as you intersect and interact with the world? And I think what you're doing there is saying, allow these words to be transformed a bit um, so that they can produce connection, interaction, Mm -hmm. um, dialogues, uh, possibility, freedom in our lives, um, and really, I mean, what else is transformation after than those things?
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, there, there may be some people who, list, who are listening to this that say, that feels a little uh, uncomfortable to me, yeah. but I point out some examples in the book that this is really the way that language has always worked, even spiritual and biblical language. I mean, when you I use some examples in the book of words, the word blessed, which there's a chapter on, and the word sin, there's a chapter on. Both of those words uh, changed in conception uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and uh, even in early Christian and later Christian usage, they changed, they morphed. They were still connected to the tree trunk. But they sprouted new branches as people began to reimagine what those words looked like in their day. And and so uh, I think that it's not so squishy when you realize that you you look at, for example, the Apostle Paul, who's co-opting a word like gospel and changing it, giving it a different meaning and incorporating it into the life of faith. Uh, This is happening all the time. And it's it is the, the the kind of necessary thing that drives us back to uh, wrestling with it. There's there's a lot of people I think today that thinks that think that or assume that, uh, particularly in a post enlightenment world, that God is in the answer. Mm-hmm. So it's all about what does the word mean. Just give me the definition. Let me write it on a on a on a index card. But uh, if you look at the the ancient rabbis, they would often say, they had this phrase, God is in the wrestling, mm-hmm. that actually that space between question and answer is holy ground, yep. that God shows up in between the question and the answer. And so what I try to do in the book is encourage people to enter into that space and wrestle with these words uh, in new ways.
0: Absolutely. And eventually we find the questions are the answers um, many times. Um yeah. So you write in the book that learning to speak God from scratch is important, but this, this isn't enough. What do you mean by that? What are you saying this, the next step is uh, once this conversation begins and creates change in your life?
1: Yeah. So what I don't want to do is, is uh, set up a totem or to create an idolatry, uh, a linguistic idolatry uh, that says words, only words matter, or words matter most, because that I don't think that that's true. There are at least uh, two sides to this coin. You know, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be spiritual, uh, has to do with both our words and our, our actions and our behaviors, uh, our practices, our disciplines. Um, you, would, you might also say our, our thinking. Our minds could be another component. So this is not all it means uh, to be a a Christian, but it it, it is at least an important uh, starting point. Um, And so what does that mean? That means that we have to learn to speak grace, mercy, love, compassion. These are important words. But eventually, we also have to learn to be grace, and be mercy, and embody compassion, and embody love. And so if you have this kind of linguistic skeleton you build, eventually you have to wrap it in flesh. That is, it is it's not just speaking words that, that make uh, these words so powerful. It's speaking words, speaking them intentionally, and pairing them with visible expressions of those words' transformative power. Uh, that is what makes words credible. So just, if if people say, I'm going to read this book, and then I'm just going to say the word grace more often, (laughs) and that's the only thing that happens in my life, I would say, you've only gone part of the way. I hope that people will will learn to be grace, to embody grace, to incarnate grace in their own lives.
0: That's a good word. Love it. Um, Well, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, I think again, this is, uh, uh, it's going to spur a lot of conversation. I know it will. Um, and I hope that, uh, you are pleased, um, with the good and necessary conversations that it does create, um, across the world for, for those of us that want to follow you and your work, um, where's the best place you would send us?
1: Well, you can certainly go to my website, which is Jonathan Merritt, two R's and two T's in Merritt, jonathanmerritt.com. And then uh, you can follow me on social media. I'm on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the things. And, uh, you know, you can sign up for my e-newsletter on my website. You You start diving into that pool, you'll see there's a There's all these uh, ways that you can connect with me. I've got a podcast that I've been doing called Seekers and Speakers that take this conversation forward. I've got a a little YouTube series that started to launch where I'll launch a video a week doing some interviews in Times Square. Uh, So I think it's going – I'm just at the beginning, I would say, of starting what I hope will be uh, a big conversation going
0: forward. Right on. Well – kudos to you super thankful for you and your generosity and thank you for putting uh like I said very good and necessary work in the world I feel like there's like a million conversations that we could we could have with you can we have you on again sometime maybe later this year 2019 would love to have you
1: I would love that that would be fantastic
0: right on my friend thanks so much my pleasure Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly. Uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car Uh, you allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs you allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted Uh, i do not take that lightly at all and i am thrilled Uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more. uh, And we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love.